0: Father, we thank you for the word that has come to us this morning. Lord, we thank you for your grace that you have showered upon each one of us this morning, that we could all come together like this. Lord, we are broken. We need you more than anything else, Lord. We pray that you will speak to us as we listen to your word, Lord. Transform our hearts so that we will draw near to you. In Jesus, mighty and pray. Amen. It's, uh, it's just today as we celebrate uh, pre-Independence Day. One of the things that in our country, which is very, we hear quite often, is uh, unity in diversity. This is what exactly we see. Our major representing from different states, but sometimes uh, diversity can create conflict as well. Uh, this is also, which is very common in uh, in our country. And as even Ranjit was praying about some of the conflict that happened in, in, in the past in our country, I think that is very obvious. And I come from a Manipur. Manipur state is where we have around 32 groups of people, different tribes, uh, 28 tribes, and some other general and Scheduled And one of the things very common in Manipur is conflict. We have around uh, 40 plus insurgency group who are fighting for their own independence, who are fighting for their own identities. So every now and then, if you come to Manipur, I think some of our friends, those who came for our wedding also experience. there's always a bun, there's always a protest, there's always a, a conflict going on. And I think it is beautiful the way God created us. It's very really diverse in terms of gender, in terms of even... Uh, let's say, tribe, race, even even the different ethnicity that we have today. But sometimes because of certain reasons, because of a certain course, we all make those things as a reason for us to fight against each other. Rather than unity, it brings diversity and conflict and battles and even what we call war today. So, conflict is something we all Experience regularly whether uh, whether it 's um, whether you are a husband, whether you are a wife or whether you are uh, children, parents, and even whether you are working in a corporate or you are working any, anywhere, which is something very common, but often we handle it very flusly a very flusly way in a very wrong way that 's where I think this particular passage is going to come very, very strongly. Nothing is more common in relationship than conflict. Conflict is something very common in every relationship. This is what exactly we all experience and we all know. And if you read the book of James, James is the one who talks about, he says, if you believe in God or if you believe the gospel, and he says, if the gospel is working in us, supposed to work through us, in other words. The way we deal with conflict is supposed to be different than the way normally, naturally, how people handle conflicts. If the gospel is not affecting the way we deal with conflict, he's saying, then it's probably not touching us very deeply. James is writing to a church or believers, the group of community who believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. He's not writing to people who do not who do not uh, know the gospel. He is writing to the people who knows the gospel. That's why I think the last couple of few, uh, couple of weeks that we have been studying, faith without work is useless. It's a debt. If you say you believe in God, if you believe in the direction, if you believe in what Christ has done for you, and if you do not produce good works, that simply means your faith is waning. In other words, the saving faith should accompany with the work itself. In a sense, it should be demonstrated through your good works. Saving faith is not alone. It comes with the work. That's why in the last week, we uh, arranged shared about how we use our tongue, that itself decide whether we have the gospel which is working in us. Is, is it working through us? That's where the chapter 4 comes in. Chapter 4 is very fascinating for me because this has been uh, kind of a challenge. I mean, it really helped me to examine myself and it really convict me of uh, in many of uh, many of my sins, and especially the way I deal with conflict in my life. I want you to think of the most recent conflict that you have with uh, somebody, or it might be your spouse, or it might be your family member, or, or a work associate. And how do you? De- how did you handle that? You have conflict. You have some issues. You have a misunderstanding. How did you deal with that? That's where. We're going to understand, we're going to read this scripture. Last uh, couple of uh, weeks in our GNU city group, we're doing, we are, we're doing a, a study on Galician. Uh, in our discussions, one of the things which, has come, which, uh, which came again and again was the, the examples or the, the conversation or the arguments that we have in our auto drivers you know, in Delhi, uh, this is one of the most difficult place uh, or difficult situation that we we face is when we uh, travel by auto. And when you ask them, for example, uh, you know it's going to cost you fifty bucks, but they will ask they will ask you how much are you go to charge. They will say hundred bucks or hundred fifty something. And if you say let's go by meter, they say no, we don't. Our meter is not working. But later on, if after your meter after your journey is finished, they will they will go with the meter for some people so it's really, really difficult if not uh, let's say sometimes even if, if uh, one of my friends, he is from us and he said sometimes they even charge you skin tax you know so if you are from if you are from different country they they definitely they will charge you more than any any normal uh, charges that they have so when we face those situations that that's where i think we kind of our true nature comes out sometimes, and then we fight. We argue with them. So we try to win the argument. Sometimes, if I don't know how many of you use your physical uh, body, but I, I don't think you have, have you used. But I think that kind of tendency comes. You want to really uh, take him to the police or you know any the law things. So what I'm saying is, conflict is something which is very normal for each one. of We face regularly uh, wherever we are in what situation we are. James is not talking about conflict that arise between Christian and secular world. In other words, he is not talking about conflict that arise because we stand for biblical truth. He's not dealing with that. If, on the other hand, if you, if you really look at even the life of Jesus, Jesus always has a conflict with people, especially with Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He, he had conflict because he was standing for the truth, he was standing for the gospel. That's why he always has conflict. I wish I had those kinds of conflicts, but most of my conflicts are not related to the biblical truth. Sometimes conflict related to some of my own personal desires and motives. But in this chapter, JM4 addresses a relational conflict that comes from selfless motive and selfless desires within the community, within the community of Teliva. One of the our values in New City is, you know, one family. It's nice to hear. One family, as soon as you say one family, what comes to your mind as you say family? Conflict comes to your mind. Fights, arguments, uh, misunderstanding, uh, bitterness, grudges. Let me ask you this how many conflicts in our life arises from, arise from us trying to get our own way? When you think of your conflict, the recent conflict, let's ask this one how many conflicts in our lives are because we did not get what we wanted. How many conflicts in our lives come from selfish desire? That's where James is addressing. Let's read verse one and two again. It says, James says, verse one: What causes quarrels and what causes fight among you? It says, is it not this that you your passions are at war within you? Let's stop for a while. Verse one. He says, what is the problem with your conflict. Why are you fighting? In other words, James is saying simply is saying because of your selfish desires, because you are a selfish person, because of your selfish interests. I mean, sometimes it's hard to hear that. In in ancient Greek, uh, one of this uh, ancient Greek, there was a story about a man, a young man. His name is Narcissus. Narcissus was a beautiful young man who fell in love with his reflection. He he was in love so much with his reflection. He all day long he sat beside the pool, gazing longingly at his own image, and he wasted his life away. And then he died and was transformed into a flower. That's where we we, we got the word narcissism or narcissus. Uh, this is Narcissus. Narcissus was the guy. That's where we got. He was so absorbed. He was so much in love with himself. That's why he rested his life. My friends, if you look at our culture in the past, we always have this narcissistic kind of a tendency in each of, each of us, in every culture. But if you look at today's, in a postmodern, let's say, one of the, the strongest, one of the things that we, people talk about is even people's values. They're, they're making us one of their values to love themselves. The it's about today we live in the culture era of radical selfishness and unbridled individualism. That's what uh, today's culture is all about. And then that's what uh, Paul also warned Timothy. He says in, in Second Timothy chapter 3 verse 1 and 2, he said to Timothy, he says, mark this. He says, take note of this. There will be a terrible time in the last day. In the last days, people will be lovers of themselves. And he says, lovers of pleasure rather than lover of God. That's where the the root of all conflict, that's what James is talking about. When I go home, especially uh, whenever I go home, back at home, you know, I have a niece and nephew. Uh, It's it's funny thing is, uh, our neighborhood got a lot of kids. And they go out and play together. In the village, everybody can just go around and play easily. It's not like in the city, you lock them in your house. But they can just go around and play. And they always come back crying. That's, that's I don't know why. I mean, they come back crying and then they'll start complaining. And you have to ask them, what happened to you? Uh, and then they will say, you know, he or she did this. Or he or she said that and this. You know, that is the very... Our default response to the question, which is, he says, "What causes quarrel and what causes fight among you?" He says, "Other people." That's that's a very uh, human tendency, natural for all of us. And a, but James points us to another cause with another of his rhetorical questions. He says, "It says, is it not this that your passions are at war within you?" You see, you see, James says that the issue is not everybody else he says. It is us. It is me. It is it is I. The problem it is not out there. It is in here, in us. That's where the problem lies. And this is hard for us to hear. You might be thinking, is that really true? I mean, I understand some of the conflict might be from this kind of angle, but not every conflict. I mean, even I myself started examining all my conflicts in life with my friends, with my uh, with my even. My wife and with anybody in my family, I felt like exactly this is what convicted me of. This is my selfish selfish desires and my passions that cause me conflict. The Greek word translated for the passion is where we get our words hedonism. If you know the word hedonism, the philosophy that considers self-gratification and pleasure is the ultimate or the primary goal of life. In other words, it is the perspective that says, I, have, I live my life to please myself. I'm living my life just for me to please myself. That's why relational conflict happens when we try to sit on the throne, when we try to be the center of everything. In verse 1, James talks about desire that battle within each of us. We want selfish gain, pleasure in this world, and that is which is best for us. what is the best thing, what is the most comforting for me? The problem is that putting people together, all who are all who have these sinful and selfish desires create fight and quarrel. Now, everybody has this selfish desire and sinful desire now you bring these people together in a community that 's what we call community we 're bringing those self uh, centers of self, uh, so, desire people together. That's where the fights and quarrels starts. That's what James is saying. What is causing you fights and quarrels? He's talking to the Christians, the believers, and he says it is exactly because of each one of us, our selfish and self centered. You know, this is the best picture of the marriage. Uh, I'm just married for six months, but I can tell you this is uh, exactly this, uh, the marriage. The, the picture of the marriage. When we put two selfish sinners together, what do we get? Definitely, we're going to get. We're not going to get all the time peace, all the time. It's we're going to have conflict. That is very natural in in any marriage. One of the things that when I was dating, um, now my wife Daisy, uh, the first thing that I told her—not the first thing, but somewhere in between when we were talking. Because the tendency for us when we date somebody is to, just to show the good part of us, the beautiful part of us, uh, where you are completely uh, the, uh, the perfect guide for that person. But, I have to tell her, like, you know, I'm a sinful man. I'm going to have conflict with you. I'm going to have some issues with you. say, the marriage is union between two sinners coming together. This is exactly, that's what James is talking about. That's why sometimes I feel like what, uh, as we are both of us are also reading a book by Tim Keller, says, this is The Meaning of Marriage. He talks about these days people are looking at marriage as me marriage. People want to get married because uh, they want to find your satisfaction, your fulfillment in, 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 in each other rather than each other. It's like marriage is about me. How can you fulfill me? How can you satisfy me? How can you complete me? That's where the conflict lies. Not only the other partner the other persons also thinking, so the selfish desire cause conflict with other people Verse one if you look at it. And let me read another uh, verse two last part and the, uh, chapter, verse three it says, "You do not have because you do not ask, you ask and do not receive because you are you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. selfish desire produces Worthless prayer, that's what uh, James is saying. He says, You are not asked, you do not get because you do not even ask. Your, your life is a prayerless life, you do not depend on God, you are not asking. But he says, Even though if you pray, even though if you ask, he says, You ask because you just to fulfill your selfish desires and motives, just to use you just to get things for your own good. But if you look at the scripture, how if you look at the teaching of Jesus, when He's asks us to pray, He says, "Your name be honored as a holy." Our prayer supposed to be means our uh, means to seek what is best for the sake of God's name and for His God's glory. That was the that was the purpose of all prayer. Be one His will, not our will, to be done. That's why. That's why. Uh, the friendship with the ball, if you read later on in verse 4 it says friendship with the ball says we will, we, my will, will will be done and my name will be great that is the human desires the sinful desires mm-hmm. my will will be done my name will be great which is completely in contrary to the, into the scripture the prayers for, are for a believer is not about my will but seeking his will and doing his will and his name to be great, uh, glorified, not our name. That's why sometimes I say, we turn God into a divine waiter. You know, if, if you've been to a restaurant or they, you, you, go you go for eating food, what happens to us, the waiter, to bring whatever you want, however you want sometimes. We choose not only for menu, sometimes we ask different kind of, uh, you know, flavor, different, different style in that. In the same way, that's what, that's what James is saying. God, He is there to deliver our daydream to us. We touch best with Him on Sunday, of course. Sometimes we keep in touch with Him. We put our order through prayer. We might give even sometimes decent tips in a collection plate, but God is essentially there to give us what we feel, what we need. This is where I think James is saying, our selfish desire produced worthless prayer. However, my friends, the purpose of prayer is not to align God to us, but to align ourselves with God, to God Himself. The point of prayer is not to change God's mind. The prayer, the purpose of God, or the purpose of our prayer is not to change God's mind because God is unchanging; He is same yesterday, today, and forever. But to change our desires. The goal of prayer is not for our will to be done, but God's will to be done on earth and in heaven. Here's something to consider to evaluate ourselves, whether our prayers are selfish prayer. Let me ask you this if all your prayers were answered today, if your prayers, if all your prayers were answered today, other than you, who would be impacted? Who would be benefited? Or who would be glorified? Or who would be saved? in that way we know whether our prayers is self-centered or it is God-centered God's goal is not to give human being what their own impulse demand his goal is that human being will learn to love what he loves it is not that God does not want people to have pleasure or enjoyment and happiness but that he wants us to train them to take pleasure in what he knows he is truly good, my friends that is the purpose of prayer and now let's read verse 4 verse 4 says says you adulterous people do you not know that the friendship with the world is enmity with God <coughs> therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God Selfish desire caused spiritual adultery. If you read verse 4, it's, it's a soaking. God is telling the, uh, the church, uh, James is telling the church, he says, you are adulterous people. Nothing violates the marriage covenant like adultery. James is not talking to non-believers, but he's talking to believers who are motivated by and live by the selfish desires for the worldly pleasures, that are who are adulterous and cheating spouse, according to the scripture. If you, if you look Ephesians, it talks about the church is a bride of Christ, a church that seeks friendship with the world, cheats on the his uh, or her bridegroom Jesus Christ, and is hostile. And they are hostile toward God. They have, they have enmity with God, an enemy of God. One of, the, one of the pictures that God always brings in the relationship between God and His people in the Old Testament is about the relationship of the marriage. You always talk about uh, how God and His people are related in the covenant of marriage. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20, God says to His people, As a woman may betray her lover, so you have betrayed me, house of Israel. God described his relationship with people like a medicine. When his people forsake him in sin, it is a picture of spiritual unfaithfulness or adultery. That's what God is telling his people in, in, in in Jeremiah. This is a serious picture. The more we are conformed to the patterns of this world, the more we love the world, the more we are in relationship with the world, the Bible says, the more we betray our God and cheat on him. And I don't know how many of you have seen people who have been cheated by the, their partners. I mean, in 2011 and 2012, one of a person whom I know was very close to me. You know, uh, he was after the marriage of not even less than one year. They were married and they were married in December, and their wife was uh, cheating on him in the month of October, in the next year. And how it destroyed him. How he has to go through such a pain and suffering. That was. I mean, I could not believe it. I. I mean, I have. I've heard of it, but seeing that person literally, how it destroyed him. How it was. How it affected him. It really, really uh, uh, shocked me, in a sense. Uh, I, I, I went to be with him I was in different state I went, I went to visit him almost 4 or 5 times just to be with him spend one week together and one of the things that initially what he was telling me was the initial time when, he, he, when I went to visit him he asked me to go and leave with him to come back to him and that really destroyed him and he, he, it affected his work he was working. He's affected his work. He could not sleep all night. He could not. He could not eat and drink. I mean, that was the that was the picture. That that's exactly God is saying. That's the picture when we started loving the world and and making enmity with God. James is not suggesting that Christians should not be friend with the world or for, with the with the unbelievers. Sorry with the people who do not believe, who are not a believer. He's talking about the selfish and godless morality of the fallen world that is in open rebellion against God. James says the church that is in bed with this world of self-glory, self-fulfillment, self-indulgence and self satisfactions and every other form of self-service is hostile toward God. If we are... In bed with the world. That's why he said we are hostile to it. God, we have made God as our enemy, or in other words, we have been unfaithful to the God, our Creator, our first love. In in First John chapter two, verse fifteen, we read. He says, "Do not love the world or the things of the world. If any anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh." The desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. My friends, church, when we seek to find our ultimate joy, worth, fulfillment, satisfaction, contentment and hope in, in the things of this world, we are like that cheating spouse who selfishly seek satisfaction in an adulterous relationship and we commit spiritual adultery. My son, this is a picture of me. This is a picture of the brokenness that is in me. I love the world. I try finding my worth and satisfaction and contentment in this world. Then the question is where does that leave me? Is there a hope for me? a person who is committing adultery? with the world against my bridegroom, in a sense, Christ. Is there a hope for me? James is talking about because of my selfish desires that leads me to commit adultery with the world. Now, is there a hope? Is there a solution? Is there there any answer? Is there any hope for me? Let's read verse 5 and 6. That's where we find our hopes. It says, verse 5, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, you, he yearned jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And verse 6 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but give grace to the humble. My friends, the solution from all this self-centeredness and adultery is God's grace. Two things we need to understand about God's response to the problem. Number one, it says why God addresses the problem. Verse 5 talks about that. Do you, do you suppose it is to no purpose that scripture tells us he yearned jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? This passage can be translated in or in some other translation. It says, God jealously longed for the spirit he made to live in us. My friends, God's concern here right now and longing is that those who have wonder would return to him. That we will come back to him. It says God is the one who is jealously longing for the spirit that he has made to live in us. Though we have run away from him, though we have... Been unfaithful to him, though we have committed adultery against him, though we have cheated him, the scripture promises us. Or the God is inviting us, is telling us, come back to me. Come back to me. As I said, uh, the brother whom I talk about, he was so much longing to, even, no matter what happened, the past is past, I'm willing to uh, take her back. Please go and talk to me. Go and talk to her and bring her back. In the same picture, that's what God is trying to show us. If you remember the the, the 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 parable of the prodigal sons, uh, it's not about just one son, but it's two sons. Two sons were lost. So the prodigal sons, and one of the younger sons, you remember, he 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 took whatever belonged, whatever he wanted from the father, and then he ran away from the father. He did not love the father. He hated the father instead of. Being with the father, he was being delighting and enjoying with the father. He took whatever he can and then he selfishly, self-centeredly he went and squandered all the money that he had. But the beautiful picture of that parable is the the father was longing for his his son to return. How do we know that? The father was waiting for him to return even though how much he had been hurt by this younger son. The father was longing for his younger son to come back. How do we know that? When we see the parables, the youngest son, when he returned, rehearsing, trying to talk, trying to, rehearse, trying to, uh, trying to you know, uh, learn what to say to his father when he made him. Now, he was rehearsing, as he was rehearsing and coming back, his father ran to him. Because his father was every day and night longing, to his, longing for his son to come back. He was looking at the, at the maybe on the road. Uh, the, the road, he was looking at the road and that as soon as he come back he ran to the mountains. in those days the patriarch or the father do not run like the father of the prodigal son, he ran to him because he was longing for him to come back, he was wanting him to come back and be united with him, that is the heart of our heavenly father's Though we betrayed Him, though we, though we hated Him, though sometimes we are self-centeredly, we, we, we leave Him, we go away from Him, but He is the loving Father, He is a gracious Father, he is, passionate, he is a patient Father who wants us to come back. But since we have been taken back to Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 and 34, verse 14, where God tells His people that He is a jealous God. He says, He is jealously longing for us to return. And he says, he's a God, he's a God of jealousy. You know, one of the things that I do not understand, this passes for a for, for long time. But now as a husband, I am jealous for the affection of my wife. And you know, now I understand what do we mean by God being jealous God. You know, anyone or anything that threatens to steal her love from me is going to meet with a, stronger, a strongest opposition. Uh, By the way, I've done my MMA training for six months. So, uh, if you if you don't if you don't believe, you can try. So, (laughs) when I was in Bangalore, I trained for MMA for uh, six months. So, what I'm trying to say is, anybody who's going to threaten our affection, that's going to be with the strongest oppositions. And it is good things in our relationship with God, and this is a good thing in marriage. You know, it is a good thing in marriage. It is, it is the way it's supposed to be in marriage. You're supposed to be jealous and longing for the affection of your partner, your spouse. If nothing, if that is not happening, then something is wrong with the marriage. <laughs> so God is a jealous God. God is infinitely jealous for his people and he will oppose with his divine force anything or anybody who threatens their good. That is what the God who is who is jealous, God who is loving. The solution is God is patiently waiting for us to come back to Him, and it's time for those who have been captured by the values or the priorities of the world to come back to their God. So He is. So, but the, but the question is, God is longing. How is it possible? How is it that we can come back to Him? Let's look at verse six again. It says He gives more. Grace, or some translation, it says he gives greater grace. He gives greater grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but give grace to the humble. God does not address the problem with condemnation. I mean, if I, if I, if I, if I picture myself in in the place of the father in the prodigal sons, I would have been like, going, let him come, let him say what he has to say, and I will think about it. You know, I'm going to judge him or either kick him out or teach him some lesson kind of things. I'm going to condemn him. I'm going to kind of uh, take seriously whatever so that he will learn for his life. That's the way we will look at it. But God does not address the problem with condemnation, but he responds with grace. That is where so beautiful, my friends. It is completely full of his grace. God is a merciful, gracious, all loving, and He willingly supplies all we need to obey Him or to love Him. In other words, He tells us that God is tirelessly on our side. He is not against us. He is for us. He never faltered in the speck of our need. He always has more grace at hand for us. He never runs out of the grace. He has more grace for us. He is never less than sufficient. He always has more and yet more to give. No matter what we do to him, my friends, he he is never beaten up. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. He still comes and saves for us. His graciousness, his generosity knows. No limit, he gives more grace and more grace. And my friends, the climax of his grace was sending his son on our behalf. And dying on the cross for us. That's where we see the fullness of God. That's what we call the good news. The gospel, God even did not spare his own son because he wants us to come back to him. I love the first John. Uh, I love the John when he says, John chapter 3, verse 17, not only 16, for God's all of the world, but after that he says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But he says, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God did not send his son to judge us, to condemn us, but to save us. In 2, 1 Timothy 3 and 4 he says, God our Savior, he says, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. And 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 says, The Lord is patient, patient toward you and toward me, not, with, not wishing that any should perish, but all that all should reach to repentance. Sometimes some people ask me why Jesus said two thousand years back he's going to come back. I said, My friends, God is still patient, patient with each one of us. That's still even God do not want any one of us to perish to come to his grace and receive and receive the blessing and the grace and joy, the grace that he has given us. So we see that God addressed the problem through grace. Amazing grace, greater grace and grace upon grace for the people, for the believer scripture says who repents who humble themselves he says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble grace to the humble he opposes the proud if God has given us, though we have fallen so of his glory, though we have run away from him, though we have been unfaithful to him, and now God have, we have conflicted God but because of that, God gave us his grace and gave us his son, one and only begotten Son. Now my question is, my friends, how do we respond to that? What should be our response? How do we, we respond to the grace that God has given us? James says in chapter seven, submit to God. Submit submission to God, submit yourselves to God. Have my friends, have we submitted ourselves to God? I know we we might we might have to say, Lord, I love you and I trust you, I believe in you. But the question is, have we really submitted ourselves to God? Have we submitted our relationship to God? Have we submitted our struggle? Even a decision that we made in life, have we submitted to Him? Let's see how, what does, when we use the word submission to God looks like. James explains further, he says, number one, verse verse 7b, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. What does it look like to to be submitting to God is James wants us to stop resisting God and start resisting the devil. That's where the first stage that he says. Sin is believing the lies of the prince of this world. That says we need something or person or status and all the while disbelieving God who says you need me. Rather than looking, turning to God, turning to everything else. That's what the sin does. Resist the devil, the scripture says, and he will flee. Whatever power and influence the devil may have, your life in Christ is far greater. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says, The spirit which is within you is greater than the spirit of any of those outside. Spirit. God, we can resist the devil. That's what the scripture promises. But many a time, my friends, many a time we try to resist Devil by our own strength and wisdom and, and, and knowledge. And that's why we go to faith. Then, Then the question is, how do we resist the devil? That's why I go back to this Matthew chapter 4, when Satan himself tempted our Lord Jesus Christ. When he was tempted, what did Jesus do? Jesus quoted the scripture. Jesus fought back. Saying through the scripture, quoting from the scriptures, it is God's word that caused Satan to flee my friends. As a believer, that's why it is important to know the Bible so that you can, have, you can use the power of God's word against the enemy's attack. Let's resist David, and the scripture says, and he will flee from us. Number two, it says, come, draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. My friends, when we draw near to God, we draw near to Him with confidently, or with confidence, or expectantly. We don't draw near to God presumptuously, knowing that God is with us, knowing that He is for us, and knowing that we are sons and daughters of God, knowing that He lives within us, knowing that He is for us, and nothing can stand against us and verse 8 says pursue purity holistically, he says cleanse your hands it's talking about external actions the outside, sinners and purify your hearts, it's talking about the internal desires, that's the heart you double minded, purity is both external and internal my friends, it's not just about what you do outside but the question is, why do you do what you do that's why James wants us to purify our hearts, our minds, our desires, our motives, and the core of our being. God, Paul's, James wants us to change from the selfish desire to God's glorifying desire. God centers, from self centered to God centered desires to come in our life. One of the Westminster Confessions which talks about the purpose of man's life, the purpose of man, mankind is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Many of us, the question we need to ask ourselves is, what is the purpose that we are here? What is the purpose of our life itself? And if it is not to glorify God and and by doing that, enjoying Him forever, then my friends, that's what James is telling us, to purify ourselves, holistically. Not only outside, inside. Even sanctify our desires, our hearts and our minds. And then verse 9 if you read, it says, he talks about we need to treat sin seriously. We need to take sin seriously. Rather, we should grieve over our sin, mourning, wailing in tears. That's what James talks about in verse nine. We need to be crying, mourning, and uh, and and yelling, wailing in tears over it, over our sin. My friend, some of the one of the one of the guys these days I've been reading is uh, Martin Louis John. In one of his book, the revival, he talks about. The revival, and he said, you know, if you go to the history of revival, you go to any of the revival history, and he says, it, 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 it is started when people take sin seriously, when they were convicted of the holiness of God, and they were convicted of the sinfulness of sin. That's where the revival starts. And our, our repentance, our revival in our life, renewal as Christians will never happen until unless we take sin seriously. In today's culture, sin is a mistake. We don't take sin. It's okay, everybody does that. That's the way we fall short of the glory of God and that's where James is saying you need to cry and mourn over our sins. We need to take sin seriously. And then the for, verse 10 says follow the Lord humbly when we humble ourselves before God. We don't have to lift ourselves. Up. God will give you grace. In your humility. He will be the one. To raise you up. You need not to do that. Anymore. My friends. As a, as a way for the Christians. The way up is the way down. If you want. To be great in the kingdom of God. As Jesus says, Learn to be a servant of all. And if you want to be lifted up. Lifted up by God it says, you, we, you know and you, you acknowledge who you really are, how broken and how deep your sin is. How much you need a savior. That's where the Christianity works, my friends. It's not by doing better, trying harder. That is not Christianity. Christianity is about acknowledging, knowing who, how broken and how deep our sin goes and completely relying on what Christ has done for us. My friends, let me read one of this uh, old hymn that says, I love this hymn, it's kind of a summary of what we discussed today. It says, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe you that are longing to see his face and he says will you this moment his grace receive my friends if we are longing if we are longing to see our God if we are longing to see our bridegroom as a church as a church this is what he says will you this moment receive his grace my friends as scripture tells us we are all broken there are conflict because of our brokenness and the conflict is solved because of what god has done for us on the cross given us his grace and because we have peace with god now we have grace with god now if you read 11 in chapter 2 chapter verse 11 and 12 it says now do not speak against your brothers do not judge brother. who are you to judge in a sense the, your relationship with god the conflict that you have between you and your god if once that is resolved then it says. You will have peace with your neighbor. You will love your neighbor. You will love your spouse. You will love yourself. You will give yourself up for the other people. And that's where we have peace with God. That's where the true wisdom, James the 3, talks about. We become the peacemaker once we have peace with God. Let's have a good time in prayer. Father, we come before you this this morning and thank you for reminding us through your word. Lord, we have been unfaithful to you. We have cheated on you. We have fought for your glory, Lord. Thank you for the reminder again that your grace is here for us. You do not condemn us. Rather, Lord, you have given us more grace, more grace. Amazing grace, grace upon grace, that we forgive your sins in the and Because of that, Lord, we can come to you with both and call you our Bar-Father. We can come to you that we are your children, and now we can resist, we can fight the fight of a good fight, Lord. Fight against the, the worldly pleasure, the love of this world, and the temptations and the attack of saving, Lord. We pray that, Lord, help us. Help us to fight a good fight. So that Lord, we will, we will be sanctified. And we will be a blessing to the city and to the people around us. Help us. We need you. You are a Savior. Jesus i name we pray. Amen. amen.